Welcome to the Waterways World Podcast, brought to you in association with ABC Leisure Group, operators of hire fleets and marinas around the UK. Hello and welcome to the Waterways World Podcast. I'm Bobby Cowling, the editor of the magazine. And in this episode, we're discussing the green future of inland boating with the Canal and River Trust's National Boating Manager, Matthew Simmons. At the Crick Boat Show in August, Matthew participated in a seminar devoted to the issue of moving the waterways away from fossil fuel burning boats. But what are the alternatives to diesel and petrol? Are they viable and how much do they cost? We discussed this, along with a couple of topical boating related matters. So, let's take a listen. moment we are in a position where most inland boats are diesel powered but that situation isn't sustainable is it i mean what i mean by sustainable in that context is it can't continue well no clearly i mean there's a there's a government target that we've got to be net zero by 2050 and it's likely that's going to come forward so we've got to see a massive shift not just in boating but right across you know, our lives to move away from fossil fuels. So boats are not exempt from that. We're going to have to find different, cleaner, more sustainable ways to power boats and for people to run the things they need on boats. At the moment, there are several alternatives to fossil fuels being explored, aren't there? Yeah, there's there's already people, you know, who are doing stuff that, that shows it's possible. So whether that's using battery technology combined with solar or using alternative biofuel types, um, there are certainly ways to do this. It's the challenge for for the, the inland boating sector is how do we make that affordable? How do we make that mainstream so it's available for everybody? Because we are going to have to see this transition across all boats so it's a quite a big challenge but it can be done and we can be done in probably a reasonably manageable period of time we've seen it happen in motor cars and i think we're going to start seeing that transition happening in more boats over the next few years i know you've conducted a survey among boats as about sustainable propulsion what did your findings reveal are boaters broadly in favour of giving up fossil fuels? I think it's fair to say there's definitely different views across the boating sector. I mean, just to put it into context, I mean, we know that the contribution of to climate change from boating is very tiny in, in the contrast with the emissions that come from buildings, that come from other transport sources or power plants. But nevertheless, every sector's got to play its part. So, you know, there are clearly a a good chunk, about a third of boaters who are fully on board, fully supportive. But at the other end, there's probably a little bit under a third who don't think this is a priority, who don't see that the contribution that that is coming from the boating sector is is significant. And in Mm. between, there's probably people who are sitting there thinking, well, yes, but, you know, is how am I going to do this? How am I going to afford this? Um, we're going to have lots of other challenges in terms of adapting my home, making that greener and other other things. So there's there's different views. That's definitely the case. 
I think the principle people agree with, it's just the practice of how do we make it happen? How do we do it without having a negative impact on voting? Because I don't think what anyone wants to see is this change um, our ability to, to navigate the waterways. Um, and that's what we want to ensure that boating is sustainable, not just in terms of environmentally sustainable, but in sustainable in terms of people can carry on boating. Indeed. You say a third aren't particularly in favour of and you're making the transition does that mean that you're going to have to kind of put energy and resources into winning people over to that argument or well i or, think it's a it's or a, the legislation just dictate that it just has to go that way anyway well the legislation's fixed so i think that's not going to change but i think what is going to change is is the market and what's available for people and i think possibly you know um that third maybe have this view because they they they're not aware of what is possible or it's not available at an affordable cost to them and mm. if that becomes cheaper if it becomes the norm which you know if you think about other things that have happened you know when people switched from from leaded to unleaded petrol you know it just became the norm over time um, mm. and i think that will happen for the boating sector too so we will see you know new technologies new fuels and we're already starting to see that with perhaps HVO as an mm. alternative to diesel. And I've heard of several marinas who have now switched to offering that only. So it's slightly more expensive, but, mm. you know, because it doesn't actually have huge impact on performance, people just accept it. And I think we will see that happening. I want to come back to HVO, but I also want to talk a little bit about electric uh, boats and electric boating infrastructure because I think for a time we believed that that probably was the way forward but um, as you've outlined in your seminar at Crick there are a few more than a few challenges to going electric um, could you explain what some of those are yeah so I mean if you if we, boats are moving to electric, I mean, lots of benefits. You can see why it would make a lot of sense for boats to have, you know, large battery packs as a as a kind of ballast. It, it kind of makes sense. It could work, and they're not you're not moving a boat at a very high speed, so efficiency wise, it could work. But the challenge for us and other navigation authorities is that how do you provide those charging places where people can top up their electricity? To a degree, people might be able to use solar. Uh, certainly in the summer, that might be a more viable option, but there's still going to be a demand for charging points. And at the moment, we haven't got a high number of charging points across the network other than on permanent mooring sites, perhaps. So we've got around 950 short-stay mooring sites on our network. And you know, you probably count on two hands how many of those sites actually offer electric charging. So that shows you the scale of the challenge if we were going to provide that. How many charging points would you anticipate you'd need? Well, I guess if we were trying to spread it out across the network and maybe, you know, ensure there's a reasonable spread where people can without having to navigate too far you're probably looking around 225 would cover the trust network now some of those places maybe in the more built-up areas in cities in towns would be easier to install because you can already tap into existing infrastructure or you might be able to piggyback onto the back of charging points for cars for example where you have 
charging points in car parks or other places close to the waterway, it may be reasonably um, economically viable to to build in charging points for boats. But in more rural places, that's going to become more of a challenge and would be more expensive to put that infrastructure in. So obviously, most of the 2,000 miles that the Trust look after are in more rural, remote locations. So it, it's quite a, a a challenge thinking about how we would do that and how we would afford to do that. You know, a bollard is a roughly about £1,500 each. So if we were looking at 225 locations where you had a number of charging points you know you can easily run into the millions of pounds to put in that sort of infrastructure so it's important that we look at how we deliver that in partnership with others and some of the places we've been doing that um, certainly in London in Islington in Camden and now in Westminster we've been working closely with those local authorities to try and do these things jointly and I think we'll see more of that going forward more of more of working with with uh, in partnership yeah both yeah. with the public sector and also with you know private operators whether that's marinas or chandleries or even you know private developments alongside the waterway where we might be able to get that infrastructure in place as part of an agreement like you do with existing planning gain it sounds like the trust is committed to electric propulsion there I think we're committed to a mixture of different things. Okay. So one of the advantages of of charging points, although it would support propulsion to a degree, it's also really important in helping reduce reliance on generators, particularly when people are moored up. Mm. And it's in those urban areas where we've not only got the challenge of climate change, we've got the issues of clean air, which is increasingly rate growing in people's awareness of the impact of emissions from from diesel particularly and the particles that come from those emissions and the impact on health. So there's a pressure to actually see what we can do to provide shore-based power for when people are moored up that means they're less reliant on their generators and possibly in the future also less reliant on on stoves for heating and finding alternative ways that they can heat their boats using cleaner green energy from electricity i see and i think you pointed out that islington is a, a primary example of that that in in as much as that uh, i think there were complaints from residents wasn't there about the the smoke and the uh, the generate noise from the generators and that, that those problems have been alleviated to some extent by the installation of electric charging Yes, so at Islington, we've got two short-stay moorings on either side of the Islington Tunnel, and just the nature of the the geography there, they're in cuttings and and slightly low down, and there's not a lot of, you know, wind passage through there. So in lots of places where you have people, you know, burning um, solid fuel stoves, the the emissions are kind of dispersed, but in that location, they do tend to hang around. So the eco moorings that have gone in there, which provide charging points on either side, and in that location, that's a pre-bookable site. So people can stay there um, for free, but they book to use that site and then they ch- they pay for the electricity. And mm. we've put certain conditions in there to try and reduce the use of generators initially. And we'll be working with boaters to try and see that they can use their stoves most efficiently to reduce the, the the smoke and pollution that comes out of there. So that's one site. 
there are other examples in London which were, will just be a case of having charging points available on towpath moorings. So there's no need to book. There's no need to um, plan to use those if they're available, if there's space, people could moor up. And then they will need an account to use the electricity. But, you know, you can just turn up. And I think we'll see more of that in certainly city centre or built up areas where people, you know, are telling us they actually want access to power mm. more readily. So they're not using their generators. Mm. Am I right in thinking it was the Islington mooring where you had uh, some degree of difficulty sourcing the electricity or there, there were some some costly issues there just in getting the infrastructure in place yeah that's definitely a big challenge um you know you think it's as simple as as plugging into the grid but actually the grid has capacity and certainly in places in london where there's huge amounts of development going on where people are putting up lots of residential and commercial buildings the infrastructure there is is quite stretched so we had to wait a while before the the capacity to tap into the the, the grid was there um, and that delayed the project so that's not unusual it also happens when we're you know trying to tap into waste sewage sites or access water points to put in new facilities but it is going to be a challenge with electricity and um, we will probably see that in other areas it's not unsurmountable but it just takes a bit longer and adds to the process yeah i see what about the uh, charging extra for the electricity in order to generate revenue for the trust, in order to f- finance this, the rollout of electric charging infrastructure? Is that something that you could do? Well, it's a, it's a good point there, Bobby, because at the moment we're constrained by the rules related to the sale of electricity. So we can only charge what the cost price is. So the trust can't at the moment make any profit on the sale of electricity. So, you know, it is something possibly to think about, but it would require changes to how the sale of electricity is governed. So we can't create a surplus which we could then reinvest at the moment. But in the long term, that might be an option for um, the regulators to think about how do we develop and deliver this extra um, infrastructure that's going to be needed. You already have the electric boat license discount. Is that something you'd look to expand or at least continue with? Yeah, so we already offer um, a discount for electric boats, but it's a very tiny number of boats that actually take that up at the moment. And yes, I think we will still continue to use that as one of the kind of incentives, but it's a relatively small incentive compared to the cost of converting your boat. So I think it will play a part, whether it will be a huge part, I'm not sure. But of course, if it does grow and we ultimately have, you know, many more boats claiming that discount, then we would have to think about where do we get that resource, that in that income from other places to mm. sort of to invest in the in the network and maintain it um it isn't just a, a case of we could you know lose that income if we lose that income we can do less so it's going to be a, a difficult balancing act trying to work that out if we see a big uptake in an electric boat discount would you consider raising the cost of a license for a conventional diesel powered boat I think that's an interesting question. It's not something we've considered. I mean, we're always very conscious about trying to balance the the contribution we get from licensed income to maintain the network. And at the moment, you know, 
the money we get from licenses is only about 10% of what we invest back in maintaining and running the network. And balancing that with it being affordable, we don't want boating to be something that is just available for those with lots of money. Mm. So, you know, it's about how do we get that balance right? And, you know, whether we use this kind of nudge theory, in a sense, if you have offering a, a better discount for boats that are cleaner and greener, then you're already charging more to those that aren't. So it's already there. Whether we want to go to the extent of increasing that even more, I think we'd be more inclined to try and nudge the incentives rather than kind of add an extra penalty onto boats because it's a balance we don't want to we want people to see it as a as a good thing that it you know we we're committed to a more sustainable cleaner uh, boating future mm-hmm. and i think we want people to see that as a plus rather than see it as a penalty if they don't mm-hmm. convert so what, is it fair to say that you're watching the the situation evolve quite closely in terms of the the various alternatives to fossil fuel yeah i think i think we're not alone in watching closely because um there isn't kind of one standout winner at the moment you know people mm. talk about uh, possible future of hydrogen whether that would play a role there's 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 obviously people using hvo increasingly there's the battery technology which we know exists and people are using but it's a it's which one's going to kind of it's this is a kind of vhs versus betamax yes. debate from the 1980s about which it one's is. going to win which yes. one's going to be the one that most people go for yeah. um so you know we we're keeping our minds open at the moment and mm. it's very much a you know it's not just for the navigation authorities this is the the boat building sector the 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 industry as a whole you know will will be very much watching which one is going to be the one that takes the lead and i think some of that might come from incentives the government might put in and it might come from development of technology that's been used in motor cars because we've seen a big take up of battery power um electric motor cars and whether that will start to trickle down and and be moved over into the maritime sector i think that's something we're watching with interest Mm. at the sustainable boating seminar at craig there seemed to be a consensus that hydro treated vegetable oil hvo a new generation of biofuel is the way forward what does the trust feel about that we certainly think that's a very quick win you know you could move very rapidly to hvo without having to change a lot of the infrastructure that already exists so it will run on most engines it will be could be you can use existing infrastructure that providers of of diesel use so it's something that can happen very quickly and have a big impact i don't know whether you know if we're ultimately looking for zero emission then obviously there is an element of emission from hvo and there's also a debate in the wider kind of sustainability question about whether you're actually taking uh, land that is used for food production into producing a fuel so if it's used as as a as a sort of stepping stone to get to a an alternative future fuel source or power source for propulsion, then mm. I think we're strongly in favour of that as a quick win. But I don't think it's the the end game. I think we will see something else beyond HVO. 
A phrase that came up a lot at the sustainable boating seminar at Crick was the existing fleet, i.e. the boats that are out on the network at the moment. They're going to be around for at least the next 50, 60, 70, 80 years or so. And I'm sure their owners are very conscious that they're going to be affected by these changes. And maybe HVO provides a good stepping stone for them, as you say. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's the big difference between cars and boats, really. You know, a boat has a much longer lifespan. So you're not going to see people change their boats and perhaps upgrade the technology as quickly as you will see with cars. So the transition is going to happen a lot quicker in motor cars and that's reflected in the legislation with the bans on sales so i think we've got to prepare that this is going to take longer for boats um but we can still get there by 2050 you know it seems like a long way away it'll be here before we know it i'm sure <laughs> but um you know hvo is as i say why it's a really good quick win as a as a quick first step mm. but it's not where we get to ultimately um and i think that's something that probably would be supported by most boaters as well because you know we've got to accept that a lot of people don't have the money to do the full adaptions that you might see in some of the you know the 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 leading battery powered boats that are on the network so hvo doesn't require a huge amount of conversion or investment and as i say some um fuel sellers are already using it and offering it and boaters seem to be willing to pay that little bit extra in the cost because they can see the benefits yes you mentioned um some marinas uh, have started supplying this so that must be a very recent thing well i've picked up from a few boaters who have got home moorings in places where they're 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 marina operators have already started to switch over to it so i think there is an issue of it's not widely available there's not um a lot of producers of hvo but Mm -hmm. clearly it's starting to trickle into the market and that's interesting and i think we'll be watching that with interest and the the feedback i've heard from them is that actually people are pretty pleased with it they you know they're not seeing a huge difference in performance and it's cleaner so what's not to like and and you don't need to do anything to your boat. It can just go, right. in, go into the fuel tank. You may have made already made that point, but it's worth making again, isn't it? You know that's a that's a great benefit, really. Absolutely. You know, yeah. it's got to be easy, hasn't it? Being greener, doing the right thing, should be better. I mean, one of the things that uh, we've just had a, a budget, and it's uh, you know topical, but you know it, the things that the, the government could do to help support this sort of quick transition. Mm. So you know, making it an incentive to use HVO by changing the fuel duty. So you're making that at least the same price as standard diesel or you're perhaps cheaper. You know, those sort of things would, would actually be a really positive step and indication of, you know, why this is a good thing to, to use. So is is the trust petitioning for that? Yes. So, so we've certainly, um, been in communication with the government departments around the issues of, of sustainable boating and of air quality. And one of the things we, we suggested and recommended when they did a consultation on ideas was that there was a move to HVO and that was supported through incentives as a kind of stepping stone. So that's certainly our position. We think that would be a really positive first step.
Waterways World has been Britain's best-selling canals and rivers magazine since 1972. In each monthly issue, you'll find the latest waterway news, practical advice on boat buying and boat ownership, reviews of the latest craft and equipment, a pull-out cruising guide to help you plan your next trip, first-hand accounts of waterways life, and insights into the history and heritage of our canals and rivers. For subscription offers, visit waterwaysworld.com, where you'll also find a searchable magazine archive, our interactive Ask an Expert Advice section, and our Boat Search feature, the most comprehensive listing of canal boats for sale you'll find online. That's waterwaysworld.com. Aside from greener proportion, are there any other ways that the waterways network can help in the battle against climate change? Well, the waterways are playing a big role already, whether or not you realise it. You know, the sort of things we're going to see or being told we're going to see over the coming years and already seeing to extend extreme weather, whether that's hot or or prolonged periods of rain, you know, the waterways act as a cooling source we've done some research recently which shows that in those urban areas being by the waterways actually lowers the air temperature so it has a positive impact in in urban areas and you know in many places the waterways are a, a natural source of drainage so they're helping to absorb extra runoff from heavy rain supplies so there are some very tangible examples of the waterways playing a role already but there's many more ways that they can play a role in future. So, for example, we have some hydro generation schemes on our waterways where, you know, using water passing alongside locks is generating power. So there's there's practical ways we can use the waterway to generate um, green energy. And also, you know, there's, there's a potential for them to be used um, for heating homes, offices and developments, you know, waterways run through lots of urban areas. And one of the technologies has been talked about a lot recently in the news is is how we move away from our gas boilers to heat buildings to greener sources. And heat pumps is one a way that can do that. And you can have air source heat pumps and you can have ground source heat pumps, but you can also have water heat pumps where you extract the heat that is always present in water, whatever time of the year, and you convert that into heating for buildings in a very green, green way. So one of the things the trust is certainly talking to other partners about is about how can the, the waterway network contribute positively to addressing the needs of climate change and if we can do that then it it can you know it doesn't take away the waterways for navigation but actually might actually make them even more resilient because we can use that investment we can get from those technologies to actually make the waterways more resilient to the future so they continue to be there for navigation so it's not either or it's how we do we mix up and join up these potential benefits which also then benefit boaters from being able to continue using the waterways i know we've touched on some topical stuff but um one thing i'm just interested in is what the trust feels about um the government's you know this kind of sewage crisis that we've we're, we're living through at the minute. How much does that affect boaters? And do you have a line on it, really? 
So we don't have sewage discharge directly into our canals, but I think it's still an issue that is of concern because we've seen water quality improve significantly over the last 10, 20 years across the network, but we still nevertheless have instance of pollution, whether that's from um, factories or commercial operators or off agricultural land, or it can as well be from individuals who put things in the water that they shouldn't. Now, our focus over recent years has very much been on removing plastic waste and cleaning up the waterways, those very visible things. But nevertheless, it's still important that we do address um, pollution where it happens. And if we can catch and identify who's responsible, take action against that. Most recently, we've had a pollution incident in the last few years on the Lee. People might be aware of, and that was caused by people discharging into a tributary, which which runs into our waterways. So that's one example where it can be really difficult to identify who's responsible. And equally, I do occasionally get reports where people uh, have disposed of their individual you know, sewage waste into the waterways, and that's not acceptable mm. either. You know, the facilities are there, people should use those, and we all want to see the water maintained and improved to the benefits of wildlife and those who boat and visit our canal network. Mm. I mean, even if it doesn't directly affect Canal and River uh, Trust waters, I guess it does show a general disregard towards the river and river and waterway environment as a whole. Yeah, I think it's it's disappointing that we see uh, waterways being used to dispose of waste, mm. and I think the response from the public shows that people do care about the quality of the waterways and do want to see them clean and healthy spaces for wildlife and for other people to enjoy. So I think it's really positive that there's been such an outcry into the, this issue and that mm. people do want to support the way that waste is treated properly so it isn't being put into our rivers or, or into the sea. Just finally, the, the other big topic of conversation at the moment in waterway circles is the Leeds and Liverpool. What's the current situation there, Matthew? So Obviously, the, the breach on the Leeds and Liverpool is, is frustrating. It's caused by a collapsed culvert. So we're working to get a solution where we hope that will be fixed as soon as possible. But it's going to be quite a, a, a big job. So I think it's going to be something that will take us through the winter. But we're aiming to get that up and running as soon as we can, but certainly by the spring. So we've been doing work you know, initially to make sure we could help boaters who were stuck on either side of the breach. Thankfully, the water is back up now on either side of that section and people have been able to navigate it all on from there. But obviously, there's no through passage. So supporting boaters where we can has been the priority and then moving on to finding a, a solution to get that culvert repaired. But as I say, it's it's quite a challenge, um, but we're hoping that will be up and open again, certainly by the spring. Would you consider those issues to be caused by climate change? Well, I think it's too soon to say what the cause of the breach on the Leeds and Liverpool has been. Mm. But we certainly are seeing the impacts of more extreme weather on a very old um, network. You know, we had the 
we've had floods in the last few winters that have been caused by very extreme weather in a very short period of time, causing significant damage. And that's happening more often. So the changes in weather patterns are certainly suggesting that there's going to be an impact on the waterways. We've mm-hmm. also had the Toddbrook incident um, where extreme weather in, in the summer, so not even in the winter, caused you know the, the breach there on the spillway, which threatened the infrastructure of the dam. So again, mm-hmm. we're putting a huge amount of investment in those big infrastructure projects over the next few years, spending millions of pounds to make sure that reservoirs as well as the canal network are more resilient to the pressures that we know we're going to face from climate change because some of those things are happening already it's not something that's going to be coming in the future they're already with us now yeah so we've got to act it's something we've all got to play a part in yes time is now yes Matthew thank you so much for your time it's been brilliant to kind of uh, illuminate this very important topic so uh, yeah I really appreciate you your, your time today thanks Bobby good to talk to you Five years, the ABC Leisure Group has been at the forefront of the waterways leisure industry. With 15 strategically placed marinas around the UK, it has hundreds of moorings with modern facilities and a range of benefits. ABC also runs a successful and competitive boat brokerage business. See abcboatsales.com, as well as over 200 luxury hire boats and day boats. Visit abcboathire.com. Furthermore, it offers a range of land-based holiday accommodation, including waterside holiday cottages and caravan parks. Visit abcholidaycottages.com.